0: Inside sources, inside sources, inside sources, where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, it seems like the higher ground, also called common ground is increasingly difficult to get to these days and many don't seem willing to make the hike uh, or to scale the summit to actually find where that is and how you can actually get there. Obviously in our political discourse uh, we've lost that ability to have dialogue but is dialogue really dead Uh, and is there a way to build it back to bridge the gaps and actually get to that higher ground of common ground? Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? again well i have been looking forward to this conversation all week long we are thrilled to have joining us on the program scott hammond a professor in the john m huntsman school of business at utah state university where his research focuses on team problem solving uh, you've also heard him on ksl news radio as the voice of the management minute uh, professor hammond thanks for joining
1: us hi Boyd, my friend
0: it is great to have you on, and uh, we want to dive right into it. Uh, is dialogue dead? Let's start there.
1: Oh, you know, you you outlined it really nicely going into the break. Uh, we tend to go to the dialectic, to, to the things that uh, the opposition, we're much more comfortable with that, and we train in that. Uh, so many of the people in Congress and in politics are lawyers, and they don't dialogue in law. They kind of do your side or my side. And so, yeah, it's, it's dead and dying.
0: Yeah, and let's break that down. I want to get into some of your thinking and some of what you experience uh, as you're helping people focus on problem-solving, team problem-solving in particular. Uh, so let's start with just a, a real core definition, difference between debate and dialogue. How do we approach it?
1: Well, a dialogue um, is something that, uh, that really is a discovery process. In a debate, you have to have two sides. In a dialogue, you can have lots of sides. Um, and so you, you talked about the echo chamber. Um, the echo chamber is something that's in a debate. But in a dialogue, you kind of sit in there and you say, I don't fully understand this problem and I have to come in and display my ignorance, not that I'm right, but that I don't know. Mm. And if everybody in the room says, I don't know, I don't fully understand, then you have the precondition for a dialogue.
0: Uh, I love that. And it—it it, it is so easy to just start from a kind of a defensive crouch of a debate, and there's a, there's two sides, as opposed to having that curiosity and that humility to say, I'm not sure I know it all, and then you can actually get information from all points
1: of the compass. Oh, yeah, and then you don't start with a solution, which is so yeah. often what we do in politics is we debate the solution, <laughs> um, not, the, not the reason for it, not the problem, not getting clear about the problem first. We debate the solution, the bill, and uh, that's not a good place to start.
0: Yeah, I, I love that. And how often do we do that, not just in our politics, but uh, I, I will confess I've been guilty of that uh, even at home.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, parents do that all the time. I'm very guilty <laughs> yeah. of that. You know, you come in and you say you need to clean your room and not, uh, hey, what's going on here? What You know, uh, you don't start and back up that way. But, you know, the example, I think they had a really good example in Utah yesterday of that not starting with solution. Years ago, we went through just a really difficult debate on healthcare in the United States, and it seemed like we started with solution. And Governor yeah. Cox yesterday launched an initiative that didn't, I was surprised, I didn't hear a solution in it. Yeah. I heard an appeal to conversation. And an appeal to bring people in and figure this thing out. And that's a great way, I think, to, to begin a, a complex problem like that.
0: Oh, I love that. And it is so important. I think of how many times we're we're guilty of that again, whether it's in our politics, in our homes, in our businesses, in our communities, so often we do start with here's the solution uh, and someone say, Well, no, here's the solution and we and we waste so much time, so much emotional energy. Uh, that we often never get around to actually having the conversation about the real
1: issue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it oversimplifies complex problems. Mm. I know you have to do that in radio because you only have a certain (laughs) amount of time. And we have to do it in the classroom because we only have a certain amount of time. But so many of the problems we're facing today are really complicated. If you look at global warming and climate issues, if you look at those kind of things, they're really complex and to say there's a liberal side and a conservative side or a Republican and a Democratic side to just polarize it that way, you, we're not going to get very far if we think of it, those complex problems that way. Yeah,
0: and, and I, that, that's uh, for me is always why we should be debating and discussing and having dialogue around very narrow things <laughs> as opposed to you know 2,500-page bills that nobody's read or things that just lump everything together. I would love to just see Congress come together around – a specific issue and really have the conversation, have the conversation in front of the American people, Uh, let everyone come in and add some amendments and ways to make it better and ways to uh, really get at the complexities, as you said, Professor, Uh, I think that would just lead us to a a very different outcome.
1: Oh, yeah. And isn't it it, so often we start with uh, the important people with the big voices and the dialogue has tradition, well, there are every, pretty much every culture has a, a dialogic tradition. You think in Utah that there are many times when people kind of, our pioneer ancestors sat around a campfire and figured things out when they couldn't see it. And um, a lot of uh, the, a lot of times we start with the big voice, the loudest voice, and a lot of the indigenous cultures, when they do a dialogic process, mm. they begin with the smallest voice. Uh, the youngest person in the room, the um, the new members, the person that's least informed even, to see how, how they see the problem. And that's a good place to start, too. And actually, that'd be a fun way, fun thing to try. You were talking about what do we do around our, our Thanksgiving table next week. That'd be a fun <laughs> thing to try is to, you know, bring up that topic and then pick the, the youngest person in the room or the teenager or the person who's been th- – maybe a little more quiet and see what they say about it.
0: Oh, I, I love that. And starting with the smallest voices, uh, I think, is uh, often a great way because they often have the they're the most perceptive because they're often listening and observing more.
1: Oh, I'm thinking of the Zulu tribe in South Africa. And when they do a dialogue, they start with the youngest, the first um, per, the youngest person first, the the new member, the first, you know the, the 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 youngest warrior first, and it sometimes goes on for days. But they know that if they start with the oldest person or the the most experienced warrior or the loudest voice, they're not going to get the great ideas that uh, that you really take that it really takes to get a dialogue
0: going. Uh, so important. Well, there are uh, many folks that are gearing up to celebrate Thanksgiving. As you mentioned, we should start with the smallest voices. Uh, Professor, thanks for staying with us, and I want to dive right in. People are having families show up, and we've got Thanksgiving next week. Uh, You've said that families and companies that master dialogue have an advantage. How so?
1: Oh, yeah, Uh, because they see things that you can't see by yourself. I've seen this so many times when I've facilitated dialogues, is that they have discoveries that we as individuals can't see. But when we collectively kind of share our perspectives; these things emerge, these strategies emerge, these solutions emerge, that are only things that only groups can see. Mm.
0: Love that, and yeah. then
1: and then you don't have a commitment problem because when you build it together, uh, then it's not hard to convince people to move forward with that solution.
0: Yeah, if they feel like they're part of that process uh, that makes such yeah. a such a big big difference. So let's break that down into some of the elements of dialogue, some steps that we can. I'll take to to master the art of dialogue.
1: Well, this is where you and I need to uh, do something in our Thanksgiving table next week, because um, we're going to be we're hard people to be around at Thanksgiving because we're seen we're not that smart, but we're seen as being smart. Right. (laughs) We can kind of fill up the room and you've got a radio show and I've got a a classroom and people kind of defer a lot. And so one of the things that I'm going to challenge myself to do is to ask only questions, Mm. non-prescriptive questions during the conversation. So uh, most questions that we ask have a, particularly professors, I'm really good at (laughs) this, is the solutions embedded in the question, right? Right. So, you know, have you thought about seeing a therapist about that? (laughs) You know, that's a good question, right? But there's a solution embedded in that. But if you say, why do you feel that way? Tell me more about that, uh, those non-prescriptive kind of questions. You're really good at that, Boyd, I think, with your guests, and that kind of sets you apart. And But those kind of things are real good to do in these family conversations. It's not a gimmick, It and people come away really feeling like they've been listened to yeah. when you do three or four layers of those kind of questions. My goodness, I, I tell my students that, to try that uh, with somebody they care about. And some of them come back to me and said, yeah, we're engaged now. Oh. you know? because,
0: <laughs> you got to be yeah, careful. What, cool. you got to know what the answer to that question is.
1: <laughs> yeah, because, you know, if, if somebody really listens to you and tries to figure out what you think for 5 or 10 or 15 minutes, mm. it's incredibly intimate.
0: Yeah, it is, I, I think there's no higher form of respect uh, than listening. Uh, and really listening and and I think this uh, idea of if you must speak, ask a question, uh, and as you said, not a prescriptive question, not a sarcastic question, but a sincere uh, question that leads uh deeper uh, I think can can make all the difference. What else should we be looking at and thinking about as we try to master the art of dialogue
1: well, well, I also think that we have to have we have to slow down we have to have places where we can slow down uh it's very hard to have a dialogue in a in a high-paced environment where you have a time frame. And one of the things we used to do in our family is we had a little code word. It said, let's go to Wendy's. Mm. And if if one of my kids said, let's go to Wendy's, we never ended up at Wendy's. It was, let's get in the car, create a space where there are no interruptions, and drive somewhere, usually late at night, and have a conversation. And, you know, finding those kind of spaces – in corporations, in our workplaces, if we're doing strategic creative work or in our families, is really important for dialogue. You can't do it with the screen in front of you, with the phone ringing, with uh, all of these kind of media distractions.
0: Yeah, we, we had a uh, experience on Sunday in, in my church where uh, we had the, the young children were singing and, and doing a program. And it was just a great event, and we were I was breaking this down with some sixteen and seventeen year olds after and they said it was so amazing, it was so wonderful. we learned so much, and I said, "Well wh- why do you think that happened uh, And they talked about how sweet and cute the kids were, but then somebody said, part of it is because everybody is leaning in and listening mm-hmm. different. There was an intensity to the listening that really changed the entire space,
1: yes, yes. And I, dialogue, uh, you know, we all have dialectic, speak from the podium. We know those kind of church practices. But most churches also have a dialogic practice mm. where you, know, you don't know what's going to happen. The LDS Church has a, a testimony meeting monthly. The Quakers have a—their a, whole meeting is based yeah. around what's going to happen spontaneously here, and, and and you don't really know coming in. It's very hard for business leaders to go into a situation without an agenda. Um, I I went to uh, an academic event a few weeks ago, and they they promised it was a dialogue. Two days, there was a podium and people got up and spoke. You know, they just didn't know how to sit there without an agenda and an open space and see what happens.
0: Yeah, I think that kind of dialogue requires – some courageous vulnerability to, to not have either the solution where we started, not to uh, give a series of lectures uh, and count that as dialogue, uh, but to have the courageous vulnerability to not be in control, uh, to allow some of that spontaneity, as you talked about, and also to create space for people to be curious.
1: Oh, yeah. And that's that curiosity gives companies a competitive advantage because You look at all these complex technologies that are emerging from our silicon slopes. Those don't happen when the boss comes in and tells you what to do. They happen when people are sitting around and one person has one part of the problem and solution. And and after a collective social interaction, these solutions emerge and these strategies emerge. And that's how you get the, the companies like Qualtrics and, you know, a long list of them uh, from Utah that have emerged as world leaders, not because of one person's vision, but because of the collective vision.
0: Yeah, so important. Real quick, I uh, just got about 30 seconds, Professor, and looking at kind of the breakthrough dialogue, uh, how do we get there? And, and what does that do for people emotionally, intellectually?
1: Oh, I, I, we we long for this. I mean, we really long for this. So my, We're so frustrated. And it is amazing when you sit in a dialogue and you have those breakthrough moments. I remember my dialogue around American democracy in high school 30 years ago, 35 years. ago. I remember that moment, that 20 minutes. The rest of high school was a blur. But we, had, we sat and tried to figure out what American democracy was. And it was a breakthrough moment for me. Uh, and those are unforgettable things. When we, when you really dialogue, it's unforgettable.
0: Yeah, it is. There is a, a depth of connection and uh, sharpness that is uh, is exciting to be part of. It does it creates those wow moments uh, that you do remember for a long time, long past the the debate, the argument, or the solution. Uh, is well in the rearview mirror. Professor Scott Hammond, again, from the John M. Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. You hear him here on KSL News Radio as the voice of the Management Minute. Uh, Professor Hammond, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to have you back real soon. We have much more dialogue uh, that we need to get to. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are.